Well, hello, I am That Weems Guy back here for another episode, and you're in for what I hope is a treat with this episode because we have three returning guests. Uh, that would be Mr. John Holshen, Mr. John Hearn, and Mr. David Cagle. Uh, they've all been on previously, but just uh, to give them a chance to introduce themselves again, uh, John Holshen, if you would please introduce yourself to the audience and tell them about yourself. Hi, uh, John Holshen. I uh, own a range and uh, gun shop north of Seattle, south of Everett, Washington. I uh, was on the road as a traveling trainer for uh, a good bit of the early 2000s in between some overseas work. And uh, yeah, just a student of the art, at least I, I try hard to be. All right. And uh, as I remember, uh, Army Special Forces. Correct. Yeah. I had, uh, had a career in the Army, was luck enough, lucky enough to get paid to do all kinds of fun things. Well, there you go. Uh, next up, John Hearn. Hey, uh, John Hearn here, uh, currently serving as a law enforcement officer on the federal side of things. Uh, despite that, I actually do work for a living. I've uh, been doing that since about 1992. I've uh, been involved in firearms training since the late 90s, a staff instructor for Tom Givens with Range Master since about 2001. And uh, I have my own training company now that I'm beginning to develop. All right. David Cagle. So I'm David Cagle. I'm a full-time law enforcement officer right outside the Oklahoma City area. And I currently work on the side as a staff instructor for hardwired tactical shooting. All righty. Uh, the four of us, along with uh, Daryl Bolke and Wayne Dobbs and uh, uh, Mr. Bill, I'm not sure if Bill's uh, employment allows for social media, uh, so I won't uh, use his full name, but Bill and a, another student who was not part of our group. Last week, we all traveled to Utah to do a class that was arranged by Daryl Bolke with Mr. Larry Mudgett. And kind of interesting that as I saw each of us post pictures and stuff from the class when it rounded up, you know, was over. Some of the reaction to some of the pictures that I saw were kind of like, who's that guy? You know, who is he? Why is it? Why is this a big deal? And I was just really struck and amazed by that. And there was one guy that got on my business page and kind of got cantankerous with it. And he ended up getting deleted off of there it was him and some of the comments of some of the people that followed up. Uh, did you guys see that? I did not. No, I missed that drama. Kegel, did you see any of that? I'm normally pretty good about keeping up with internet drama, but I missed that. <laughs> All right. Well, for those uh, in the audience who are not familiar with who Larry Mudgett is, um, Mr. Mudgett or, or Larry uh, did a tour in Vietnam in 67 and 68, I think was when he was there. And he was a weapons sergeant in uh, an infantry unit, participated in some of the, the big major battles there. He came home and joined the LAPD in 1969. Uh, he ended up being uh, LAPD officer for 35 years. For 14 of those years, I believe, he was on LAPD SWAT. And if, for those that aren't familiar, LAPD is who originated the whole SWAT concept. Mm -hmm. right. That's where it was born. Uh, it was actually uh, their chief, Daryl Gates, uh, when he saw the Texas uh, clock tower shooting, he decided he needed a group of specially trained officers that could deal with such situations. And that's where the whole concept of SWAT came from. And LAPD started it. Um, 
their SWAT unit is housed within what is known as the Metro Division of the Los Angeles Police Department. Um, when a recruit graduates the academy and they complete field training, they go out to one of the geographic based districts. And th for those of us that were raised on 1970s cop TV, you'll, Kegel, you'll just have to bear with us on that. Um, you'll be familiar with names like Rampart Division, Hollywood Division, Sunset Division, I think 77th is one. Uh, those cadets, let's say when they graduate from their field training, they go to one of those divisions and they work for, for a period of time, at which point in time they can compete to get into Metro Division, which is a citywide division. And then within Metro, there are housed all of the specialty units. It is a further competition to get on SWAT. You have to first make it into Metro. And then once you're in Metro, you can later compete uh, to get selected to the SWAT team. Um, Mr. Mudgett was for 10 years, the lead firearms instructor for the Metro division. So he was on SWAT for 14 years. And then when he came time for him to leave SWAT, he went to the LAPD Academy and was their chief firearms instructor for 13 years. I believe I've got all that math correct. Uh, is that job of what you guys remember? Definitely. All right. Yeah. And uh, also, uh, if I recall correctly, he uh, was awarded the Medal of Valor not once, but twice yes. uh, during his career. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, he has two medals of valor. One was in the late 70s and one was in a very, um, very well documented incident in 1985, the Bomar uh, incident. I believe that was him and John Helms, if I'm correct. Um, you know, LAPD, for those that are familiar, you may have heard talk on episodes of this show or elsewhere, talk about the bonus course, which is an advanced combat course is its official name. That um, course has been shot by thousands upon thousands upon thousands of officers coming through the LAPD, and only 39 people have shot a perfect score on this course, and Larry has done it three times. So I personally think all of the above qualifies him for legend status. Mm -hmm. Uh, is anyone on the panel disagree with that? Oh, absolutely. And I would just let you know, his instruction wasn't limited to the LAPD. He was a right. longtime instructor and range master at Gunsight as well. Right. Uh, to get into that, I think he said 1980 was the first time he made a trip to Gunsight. Um, he was exposed to the Gunsight teachings then. He was introduced to this drill called the Mozambique. Uh, that was a drill originated at gunsight, which was you fired two to the chest. You then went back to a guard position and then transitioned and made a headshot if necessary. Uh, Larry and John Helms uh, modified that to what was now called the failure drill. And it was two in the chest immediately transitioned to the head. And if the head was still there and if the person was still a threat, you would fire the headshot at, at that point. And so that's Larry Mudgett. Uh, pretty much everybody that's done any kind of firearms training has done something that he's touched. Uh, and I guess we should also go into is uh, he helped do the original training for several Marine Corps special operations units. Like when they founded the units, like the Marine Corps version uh, or their, I guess their analog to Delta and the SEALs, he's who the, the Marines brought in to train them. Now, 
I guess, you know, to me, that kind of brings us to what I think is the most significantly interesting uh, contribution from my point of view is in any (coughs) you look at, there's there high performing folks that are not, however, necessarily involved in passing that knowledge on to anyone else. And if they do do so, they do so with varying degrees of success. And I, I think that is, from my point of view, as a as a longtime instructor, I guess I, I should have been a little more verbose in my uh, in my comments. I, I currently teach a lot of beginning shooters. I've been teaching over well, or, um, the organization that I head here is teaching over a thousand shooters a year. Uh, I typically do at least a third of those. The last couple of years, we've been over 1,500, over 1,800 last year on track to do that again this year. So I see a lot of new students. And to me, you know, the real test of mastery that I'm interested in is the ability to pass on those skills to somebody else. And uh, it was really obvious. I hope I'm not stealing thunder from later. But to me, it was really obvious that Larry had spent an immense amount of time coming up with a cohesive, coherent package to bring other people up to a high level of shooting proficiency, uh, which is a completely different thing than what he can do personally. That is an excellent, excellent point. And it should also be noted that he was turning out academy classes, rather large academy classes in which every cadet earned a shooting medal on the bonus course. And that's not just qualified. They, they went, my understanding, they went from failures to qualify being the largest, um, event leading to them being dropped from the academy to everybody or nearly everyone qualifying and a very significant number of them uh, then going into the bonus course and and getting levels of performance marksmanship medals over and above qualification for for those of us who are adam 12 fans if you remember malloy and and the medal that he wore on his uniform that would have been from the bonus course and so he's turning out a higher academy classes that do that uh david do you have anything you'd like to add about larry's background or anything before we start uh yeah so he was also one of the adjunct instructors for doe and their kind of SWAT teams you know that guard the nuclear plants and things and he and scott reitz and john helms did that for like 10 years so i mean they just trained an extremely wide berth of people from basically every kind of faucet of armed professionals but I, I think it's important that before we get off the subject of talking about him shooting the 400s on the bonus, uh, we note that all of his 400s were shot with a stock Beretta 92, like a factory 92 FS. Um, so it's not like these days where, you know, dudes roll up with their rolling special with an RMR and a compensator and their ammo that barely cycles the gun. He straight up shot. A couple perfect scores on one of the hardest forces of fire ever developed with a stock Beretta 92. So that's basically the only qualifier I think you need for firearms training skill right there. Um, But I think that's pretty cool. And on the subject of you guys were talking about academy classes and shooting medals. So I forget the exact um, number he was at when he first went in, but it was something like only 20% of uh students were getting academy cadets were getting shooting medals and they brought in Mr. Mudget and he kind of implements his program uh and his first academy class it was like 98 percent uh 
got shooting medals. His second one, like 99. And then I think it was by his third one, 100% of Academy cadets were getting shooting medals. And he stayed at 100% for 13 years. So after he hit that 100%, he had a 13-year stretch where he never dipped below every single cadet getting a shooting medal, which, you know, I know a lot of you guys have trained a lot of cops. Um, that is impressive. All right. Hearn, anything you would like to add on background or? I, I think that uh, Hoshin hit the key point. It's one thing to be able to do this stuff yourself. It's another thing to be able to convey that material to others. That is the mark of a true instructor. And just the track record we just outlined just tells you how great of an instructional background he obviously has. Yeah, you know, as you guys are talking about that, it, you know, it's kind of reminds you of, say, like Michael Jordan trying to coach an NBA team. Well, dunking from the foul line is easy. You just run up here and you jump right here like this and you don't dunk the ball. What do you mean you can't do that? No. And it's, you know, yeah, it's, yeah go ahead, John. You look at whether it's, whether it's boxing or professional football or any professional sport, uh, the number of top performers that went on to be top coaches, that's, that's the exception to the rule. Most top coaches, fact is coaches and instructors are, are motivated differently than top performers. And uh, it's rare, it truly is rare to bring the two together in, in one individual. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I was truly honored to be able to spend the week out there. Uh, one of the things that I see from a law enforcement perspective is we don't have a shared history the way the branches of the military do. Like you get an 18-year-old guy that's graduating from uh, Marine Corps boot camp right now. That young man has an ownership in Iwo Jima. He has an ownership in the Frozen Chosen. Uh, you know, that's all part of their history, even though they weren't there. The Marines that come along later, they still recognize those guys and everything. And it's, it's a big family thing. Well, in law enforcement, you know, we got 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. And there's no connection except for when somebody does something wrong, we all get blamed for it. But there's really no connection between, say, David's agency and my agency or John's agency and my agency or what have you. But when we come together and train, it does kind of create a bond. And I was, you know, felt honored to be able to spend a week on the range with someone like Larry that had done everything that he's done. And did you guys feel any sort of sense of camaraderie that way? Start with John Holson. Absolutely. And, uh, and then for, for me, uh, Larry and I had some conversations based on military experience as well. So, uh, you know, crossed, crossed that line as well. You know, I think for, for me, uh, I recognize warriors and as, as people of like mind, uh, brothers in spirit. And uh, there's no doubt that Larry is that. John Hearn. Uh, I think very much along the, uh, the same lines there. Um, I think that uh, even if he didn't agree with everything we were doing a hundred percent, I think there was definitely some respect there and uh, some good conversations either, you know, on the line or sidebars where, uh, you know, he, I think he was really happy that we were there to, to learn what he already knew. And I think that uh, he's one of those people that, uh, you know, nobody's mentioned the fact that he's 74 years old, which is impressive in and of itself. And I think he's one of those guys that's absolutely passionate about this subject. And he's teaching firearms right now because he can't not teach firearms. Uh, that's, that's a good point. And I think he said something at one point about he was excited because he thought 
by teaching this group, it we would go forth and impart what we learned this week. Mm -hmm. He was sure that was going to happen. All right, David Cagle. So, yeah, I, I definitely think there was some of what you're talking about. Um, you guys know me. I'm still rather young and impressionable. And the, uh, the LAPD D-team guys from that era, you know, Larry Mudgett, John Helms, and Scott Reitz, those guys are my law enforcement heroes. Um, so those are the guys that, you know, from the minute started training and wanting to be a cop, that's who I looked up to. Um, so I definitely think, you know, being out there on the range with him, now that I am a cop, now that we've had some similar experiences and certain things and things like that, it was, that's definitely something that I felt. And um, I don't think I mentioned this yet, but this was actually the second time I had taken that class because I came out back in May and took it um, with just a regular group of students. And so I'm a full believer in what Larry's doing. Um, I kind of think it's crazy that everyone doesn't teach beginning students the way that he does. And so definitely getting back out there, it solidified kind of that law enforcement camaraderie you're talking about. So definitely. There you go. Uh, at this point, I kind of like to start talking about the techniques and stuff that we learned. And uh, uh, John Holshin, we'll start with you. What stood out the most to you in for his, his teaching style or the techniques that you were exposed to? I think the first thing for me is, is even above the individual teaching techniques. And that is that I'm trained formally as an instructor. Um, I was an instructor at the Special Forces, the Army Special Forces School for several years. I've uh, been an instructor, trained an instructor in a, in a bunch of other things in my life. Um, to include shooting. And I, I really enjoy at this point looking at how people structure their attempts to pass on knowledge and skills. And frankly, as you travel around, I, I try and take a couple of classes at least every year, two to three classes from other people. And although there can be nuggets there, it is not the norm to find a class that is really set up within the standards and guidelines that I learned in terms of setting up military instruction, or I, I taught in the junior college uh, venues, uh, taught paramedicine in a bunch of colleges around the country as I traveled around as well. I was a special forces medic after I was a special forces weapons sergeant. And th really, the first thing that jumps out at me, as I mentioned before, it is his program is both cohesive and comprehensive. Um, every range drill, you absolutely knew what the purpose of that drill was. And it was building in a stair-step fashion. He had sat down and actually started with an analysis of the needs and then built a system of what we would now call enabling learning objectives and terminal learning objectives. And in, this is an actual program where, frankly, most of the instruction I receive is more um, a collection of drills or what people call drills that really are more like quizzes almost. They're skill builders if you do it enough, but really they're not designed to break down the fundamental building blocks take them apart, polish, develop them individually, polish them individually and put them back together. Larry has a program that absolutely is designed to do that. All right, John Hearn. Uh, well, two thoughts uh, uh, tied to what John said is another observation. I mean, one of the things that you learn being an instructor is you love to watch how other people run classes. And I'm talking about like just infrastructure stuff. So the fact that he had high quality targets, um, you know, it was very high end steel, 
uh, photorealistic targets. We all know what they cost per piece. Uh, the fact that it, the, the range was laid out methodically with a plumb line. And uh, to give kudos, he had a really good set of uh, assistant instructors that um, weren't just standing there doing nothing. They understood the material. So he obviously had imparted a, a good bit of knowledge to those guys as well. Sure, David. Yeah, so I think one of the the most interesting things to me about it is having seen kind of a regular group of, and his typical kind of clientele for this class for the listeners that don't know is it's really, it's kind of an intro class. He typically takes people who don't have shooting experience and brings them up in four days. And uh, so I've seen a group like that go through and then getting to go through with you guys and Daryl and Wayne and, you know, just this group of people um, was, hold on one second. I'm getting a call. Be right back. <laughs> sure. Um, I guess mine would be, it was a complete system. I know he had a methodical stair-step way that he was going to impart what he wanted to impart. And yeah, it wasn't like, uh, yeah, I've done all these great things. Now come shoot with me and do these drills that I do. It was, I'm going to take you from, you're just my big ball of clay and I'm going to take you and mold you the way that I want to do it. And at the end, you're going to be able to function and perform. Yeah. Uh, a couple of thoughts I'll just throw out there real quickly. You know, I was impressed, um, you know, with the, besides the resources he brought to the range is that we haven't talked about round count yet, but for a remarkably low round count class, there was a tremendous amount of knowledge passed on. And there were a couple of other neat points that I had, I think that a lot of us do without realizing we're doing it, but you know, as an, an instance of that, he talked about, we're going to shoot a drill, break down the drill, and then we're going to talk about the lessons learned. And then we're going to repeat it with the express intention of taking all the information that we just passed on to you and trying to integrate a lot of in a lot of classes you'll shoot a drill real quick you'll move on to the next one to the next one so he was very methodical in not only laying out the information in a step-by-step fashion but if there was a key point in the curriculum you, you worked on it and got feedback and immediately ran it again to give you a chance to integrate that feedback as quickly as possible and that's how feedback's supposed to be delivered and it, it rarely, it's it's so uncommon that that happens that it stood out to me. Sure. Kegel, did you have any thoughts that you wanted to share before we moved on? Yes, absolutely. So uh, first off, sorry, guys. Um, I am at the station right now, so I had to go answer a question for dispatch. So sorry I had to jump out of, in the middle of my thought like that. Sure. But uh, going back to what I was going to say is, you know, I've been through – this material watching him take brand new shooters through it and now I've been through his material watching him take um, professional firearms instructors to at the top level through it and it really didn't seem like either group was super skewed in what they got out of it Um, the material itself was so good and so kind of moldable to the student that the brand new shooters got a ton out of it And you guys obviously got a ton out of it. I know I did both times. And so I think it's one of those kind of rare things where regardless of your skill level, you're still going to get a ton out of what he's teaching. Um, And you can kind of apply it to any skill level, which is not often that you find a class like that. 
Exactly. We're going to come back to that uh, skill level thing later on. Uh, Mr. Holson, did you have anything you wanted to add based on what you heard from the other guys? No, I think, uh, you know, I, I think our thoughts on that are pretty consistent. Yeah. Another thing that I thought was interesting was that Mr. Mudgett had every student put their pistol down on a table and then he shot a group with each student's gun in front of them. And, you know, there's not any of this, well, my sights are off or anything like that. It's like, no, uh, we knew exactly where your gun was shooting and how it would, would group uh, by the time he was done with it. And um, I thought that was very interesting in the fact, too, that he wasn't intimidated in the least and by what was laid down on the table in front of him. And the other thing was, you know, he's not a guy that's, well, I can only do this with my gun. Yeah, it's like whatever you laid on the table, he picked up and he shot an every round touching group with it. Uh, Mr. Holson, if you'd like to address that. Yeah, and that was, uh, you, you inferred it there, but that, of course, as he explained it, was mm -hmm. the first step in the training methodology was he had to know as the instructor um, that the gun was sighted properly. And he explained that that was something that he did at LAPD was he shot every recruit's gun um, he or other instructors shot every recruit's gun and those that weren't zeroed properly, he sent them back to be zeroed properly before he began to instruct people with them. So remove that variable right up, up front. And there were a, a couple of folks that he, you know, acknowledged that, uh, okay, your gun is printing a little this or a little that. Mm -hmm. uh, I noticed that when he shot mine, it patterned in a different or grouped in a different spot in which it did for me. And we immediately analyzed that. Why is it doing this? And the difference was the grip tension that he was putting on the gun was different than the grip tension that I was putting on the gun. And we were both shooting every round touching groups, but mine was like two inches higher than his. And I thought that was interesting, just seeing the difference in the grip technique and how much that changed where the gun was hitting. And for information for the audience, this was a red dot sighted pistol. So it, it, it was very, it wasn't a difference in sight picture or anything like that. It was the difference in the grip. John, any, any thoughts? Uh, John heard any thoughts on the him shooting everybody's gun like that? I was just impressed with that because, like I say, it eliminates a lot of alibis. And it also reminds a lot of people out, you know, for the audience that your gun really isn't zeroed. I, you know, just a quick antidote. When I went to do the FBI firearms instructor course, you have to shoot a bullseye course there. And I really struggled with that course. So I, I talked to my mentor, Tom Givens, and he said, basically, go pick an ammo that is really accurate in your gun and zero that gun. And, and that's what I ended up doing was I found out that Winchester Ranger duty ammo shot really well in my gun. And the gun had to physically, the sights had to be adjusted to be able to hit the, the black of the bullseye at 25 yards. Uh, also, of course, the caveat there is you have to have the ability as a shooter to actually shoot the group there to make sure it happens. But I mean, he was, like you said, he was able to pick up everybody's gun and shoot it to its mechanical ability. On demand, no warm up. Here we go. Right, Mr. Cagle. Yeah, so I think this is one of the most interesting concepts um, as far as just being a consummate firearms professional because we had double action, single action, um, traditional double action guns, uh, single action. I was shooting a Staccato P, uh, Glocks, CZ striker fired guns. We had every kind of different type of pistol you could imagine. Some had iron sights, some had red dots. 
And he just went down the line and shot all of them back to back to back to back and uh, shot one whole groups with all of them. Because to him, it doesn't matter what the tool is. He takes his fundamental principles and he applies them to the marksmanship solution. And that was really impressive to me because I think we've all come across instructors before that can only shoot their gun. And that is something that I think is not acceptable for an instructor. Um, That's one of the things Daryl has been big with me on when he's kind of been my firearms training mentor recently. And so, you know, being able to take anybody's gun and, and teach them on it, that's the mark of a professional, someone that can just instruct on their gun. Yeah. Okay. You know, it takes a certain level of understanding, but to be able to teach anything and shoot anything and understand anything that's a sign of a master right there. Yeah, and I, I will divulge this now to the audience. When I adopted the group that he was teaching, guess where my group started hitting? In the exact same place that his group was hitting. <laughs> I think there's one other thing to uh, point yeah. out as well. We're talking about uh, zeroing in one hole groups. Uh, all this was, was at 12 yards. Uh, Larry makes the point that uh, in, in some of his literature as well he says that if you're not at least 10 yards away uh he doesn't believe that you're you're far enough away to see those slight nuances so uh, this was this was all at 12 yards exactly Exactly. not an extreme distance but enough to tell yeah because you see a lot of uh three yard snipers out there on the range yep yeah um i also think it's interesting in that uh he points out that most of the sighting errors are rear sight errors. They're not front sight errors. And I saw light bulbs going off all over the, uh, the classroom that day when he, when he put that up on, the, on the, the slide presentation and he proved it out on the range that we keep telling students all the time, focus on your front sight, focus on your front sight, front sight's what matters. But when students are actually missing, it's because the rear sight was misaligned. Uh, Mr. Holshin, I'll leave, give it to you for that. No. Yeah, one of the things that, you know, my, my passion, as I've kind of alluded to several times, is, is training, is, is passing on knowledge. And one of the things that I know is that I get the average group of students uh, further now in a two-day course than I did 10 years ago. And a big piece of that, I'm, I'm a firm believer that the English language is a wonderful tool and that using it precisely um, in ways that are communicative, evocative, uh, produces better results. And, and absolutely, I understand intellectually, and, and we all do, that uh, the relationship between the sites, but I realized immediately that I expect I will see an improvement yet again in the rate of student um, increase in performance in terms of giving direction, correction, I should say, via the rear sight, most people can center up the front sight on the target. And when we keep talking to them about the front sight, the real issue is uh, if they're if they're shooting too high, it's that the rear sight is too low um, in relationship to that front sight. So just simply giving corrections via the front sight, and I've already started playing with that in my classes 
and uh, not playing with it, but doing it as the way I give site directions now. And it's a little too early to be able to kind of document the differences, but I, I, I think I see it in the students already that uh, thinking and giving corrections in terms of the rear site will produce quicker results in, in achieving the desired outcome, I believe. Mr. Hearn. I think those are all very, very solid points as far as that goes. I think that um, you're lying if you're, especially if you're a fire you're not saying this, you start out your career saying front sight and don't jerk the trigger. I think we all start there, but that's really not constructive information. It doesn't improve anybody's performance. Um, and if you stay in it long enough, you figure out better ways to impart it. And it was just really nice to spend four days with somebody that's already thought deeply about this subject and, already, and has already figured out a lot of these points already. I, you know, I, you know, I'm infamous for taking notes and I took a lot of uh, notes in this class, uh, just little things worth you know, integrating into my program as well. Yeah, uh, Mr. Cagle had to step away. That's why we're, we're missing him on this rotation. Uh, when he said that about the rear side, it reminded me of an anecdote from my own training history. Um, in which I was a fairly new instructor and I was teaching a group of pre-academy cadets and introductory firearms before they went to the academy. And I had a, a shooter on the range and we did a day of classroom and then we would go to the range. Well, in the slide presentation that we used in the classroom, when we talked about sight alignment and sight picture, it showed you know, proper sight alignment and picture of the rear sight and the front sight, everything like it should be. But, you know, we also always talk about focus on the front sight, press the trigger straight to the rear without disturbing the sights. I had one uh, pre-service cadet that was shooting abysmally. I was like getting scores in the 50s uh, from this cadet. And I was beginning to doubt, you know, my abilities as an instructor and everything. And I called the lead firearms instructor and explained to him what was going on. And he said, well, give her one more try. And, you know, you're not a miracle worker. And I said, all right, I, I'm going to go back to the basics here. So I, I got out a notebook and I had this cadet come over to where I was and I drew a target and I drew a sight picture on it. And she goes, oh, we're supposed to look through the rear sight at the front sight. What she was hearing me say was my focus on the front sight was wherever the front sight was. Well, she was focusing on the front sight. She was doing exactly what I was telling her to do. And we go out to shoot the course again, and she shoots a very high passing score. And it was just as simple as the, and I know I even went back and pulled up the slideshow presentation to make sure that slide was in there. And it was. And like, but that student missed it. And then we're on the range. We're talking about focus on the front sight. Okay, maybe it's we need to speak more about the rear sight. And of course, everybody's going to red dots these days, and it's going to make all that irrelevant. But uh, I was just really struck by when he started talking about that. So, you know, I probably would have had a lot of easier time working with students by clarifying the rear sight issue. And I think that's part of what Larry's learned over the years is you don't make assumptions. And that's what a lot of his program, um, if you're used to, you know, shooting 2,500 rounds in over a weekend in a course, this may seem slow paced to you, but he did a very good job of separating the fundamentals of shooting. For instance, we all know that the fundamentals of shooting are sights and trigger. He did a great job 
of not making any assumptions about anything. We're going to work the sites in isolation. We're going to make sure you have 100% understanding of sites. Once we've got that 100% standing, we can trust you to hold that relationship while we start to work on your trigger development. And I've done some stuff where I kind of try to separate out the two, but I found it to be brilliant to just start from that assumption. It's like, hey, let's make sure, you know, especially for the, the novice shooter that this class is really intended for, is let's not make any assumptions at all. Uh, and I thought that was an interesting, you know, his conclusion after teaching a bunch of basic students for a long period of time, I see a tremendous wisdom in that plan. Sure. Mr. Holson, any follow-up? You know, that's, uh, you know, again, that methodology, I had used many of the methodologies that he used, but I applied particularly the one that you're talking about right now, John, as a corrective action for folks that were apparent that were having difficulty and I needed to diagnose what their difficulty was, number one, and number two, convince them where their difficulty was, basically show them that, look, your aiming is awesome, you're doing just great, we got to work on these other things. So I had used it as remediation. And for him, as you say, he's like, no, no, let's just let's just do it with everybody. Let's just do it with everybody. And we've got now that person has firsthand experience of success. And so two things. One, the instructor absolutely knows that they know. Secondly, the, the student has firsthand experience of success uh, with their aiming and without having to having that muddied up by what they're doing with their trigger. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a very interesting approach. Yeah. Um... As he was doing that, and I think in the class, uh, John Hearn, you made the statement, of, I think, to the effect of, okay, you taught aiming, and then you taught trigger press, and then we merged it all together. Is that correct? Yeah, I, that was a really good way to summarize his methodology. Um, that, that's exactly what we did, and it was you know, a silent for those that know, you know, basically, uh, he has four fundamental trigger drills, which, uh, you know, we've always, if you've been around the firearms instructor community, we've always, I've always heard him called an exemplar drill. Well, and there's only, really only one, one or two versions of that. Well, he actually had four. And all, when you combine all four, you're working all the aspects of sight and trigger in a way that makes sure the student understands everything completely, that you start out with the two skills separated, but you eventually get to the point where the two are merged. And it was just, it was really impressive um, to take it down to that level and to see the effects of that. Sure. Uh, Mr. Holson, any follow-up? Yep, we've got it. You know, so here, here's, I guess, where we start extrapolating. Uh, I have a jailer that I'm working with now trying to get to the academy, and we keep taking the, like, the, the one step forward, half step back deal. And so the whole time we were in the class last week, I'm thinking of what my uh, student is going to experience when I get back. Mm -hmm. And... I got an, an approach in mind. I think I'm going to have him, his issue weapons is an iron-sided gun. I kind of think I'm going to provide a red dot-sided gun for him so that I know that aiming is not the problem. And then approach the trigger and then come back and try to reintegrate that in. Uh, Mr. Holson, I know you've been working with red dots for a while. What do you think of that approach? Well, uh, the first thing was a question is, uh, what's the age of the student you're working with? Uh, he's probably the late twenties, early thirties. Okay. Still could be, that's a little early for most folks, but mm -hmm. definitely. So in what I do now, uh, I've gone from, from teaching 
military folks for the most part to for the most part teaching private citizens um i deal with a lot of older students and absolutely um that red dot site simplifies so much of the eyesight issues and so that is a tool that i use as well at times uh, but the bottom line is using Larry's drill, you can absolutely isolate whether it is uh, a sight problem. And then from there, in determining whether it's a vision problem or a conceptual problem is, is the next step, of course, if you decide that's what it is. But that's absolutely what I have found when I've used that drill for remediation is with some folks, the fact of the matter is. So as I aged, one of the things that I found was for me, the first thing I noticed was I was shooting. I'm, I'm also a Washington State Criminal Justice Training Commission uh, trainer, teach some law enforcement classes, but I teach a lot of private security, private investigator and bail bond recovery classes. And uh, in that capacity, I have to shoot a, a recall. It used to be every year. And uh, I noticed at the 25-yard line, my group started getting taller. It didn't get any wider, but it got taller. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not understanding how I'm still shooting a group, you know, four or five inches wide, but now it's eight inches tall or six or eight inches tall. And then I, I really was well, talking to a shooter friend that is an eye doctor. And he said, uh, you, are you having problems making the front sight clear? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm having problems making the front sight sharp and clear. And he said, well, John, you know, you can, you can center a blur just fine. And that's your windage, of course, the width of your group. But he said, if you can't tell where the top of that front sight is, because it's actually looks like it's about an, at the top of it is an eight in, an eighth of an inch wide blur, you don't get the top of it in the same place every time. So you get this wandering front sight height, and that, that explained it. Um, so even with younger folks, sometimes we find that they have vision problems, and they don't realize it, uh, or they've chosen not to correct it, and it'll definitely show up in that drill that they actually can't get a consistent Sight picture. Sure. Mr. Hearn. Red dot will definitely make a difference. Well, and the other thing just is, a, is the red dot as a training tool is uh, my agency is steadfastly stuck in the, you know, I guess arguably the, the 17th century with refusing to move to red dots. But I picked up one a couple of years ago strictly for the purpose of um, helping people learn to shoot better. Because if you can actually keep your eyes open during the recoil cycle, that red dot provides tremendous visual information about what your trigger press is actually doing. So, I, you know, introducing the red dot as an instructional methodology, even if you don't carry it, has tremendous value because, again, you've separated sights from trigger. And uh, you'll, you'll have a much better, because of the, uh, the additional, I'm not sure what the MOA is on a front sight, but it's a lot. When you transition to something that's what maybe a 60-minute of angle, I'm just putting a wet finger in the air, to something that's a three or a six-minute of angle aiming, you'll definitely see the effects of trigger on that, uh, that aiming device. Sure. Yeah. That's, uh, that's something I have worked on. I've been running a red dot uh, exclusively in all my everyday carry guns since 2004 five-ish, actually late 2004, I believe. And uh, so we get into this discussion now and then. So I had uh, had my wife measure the distance from my eyeball to the front side of a Glock 19, get the, the formula out and calculate it. And my narrow Heine front sight is approximately 18 MOA um, at my arm length distance. If yours are a little shorter, a little longer, it'll vary a little bit. Uh, but yeah, we've got an 18 MOA front, front sight, iron sight. And uh, even if you go to a big dot, um, you know, the larger of them now are six and a half to eight. 
So uh, you have a lot more precise aiming point. But honestly, I think that's secondary to the alignment issue, the fact that you're you're not actually aligning things. Yeah. All right. Now I want to move on to what did you take away as the biggest thing about your personal skill, not what you're going to impart to other people, but what did you as a shooter learn the most in the class? Hmm. Uh, Mr. Holshin. Gosh, I got to go there before I got, I got one more on the training side. Uh, we didn't talk at all about skip loading. Are we going to come back to that? <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that. Since all right, we'll come back to that if we have time. And, and to give you uh, a moment to think, I'll go with mine and then, then we'll okay. come. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was seeing how much the gun moved in over travel. Mm. That I was typically breaking the shot cleanly, but I was getting a lot of movement and over travel. And while that's not going to pull a shot off target, it's certainly if you're shooting for group, it is going to open it up. And I've been experimenting since I got home uh, with dry fire. And I think the fix is making sure there's less tension in my trigger finger. Mm -hmm. And I don't have, I've been able to exert the same amount of pressure on the trigger and dry practice without as much tension in my finger. And I'm seeing much less movement of the front side on an iron gun or on a dot in those instances. And so I think that's going to lead to the biggest uh, skill improvement on my own. And of course, obviously, that will be imparted as, as, as an instructor. But uh, that's the one thing I walked off the range with knowing the most that I needed to work on. And I believe Wayne said something. He made a comment. Somebody said something about pressure with the trigger finger. And Wayne said, oh, your trigger finger should be loose like a noodle. And I didn't catch it right then, but I got to thinking about it later as I was seeing how much um, movement that was in over-travel. And Mr. Holston and I were teamed up uh, several times. And part of the procedure is, is that when you do a press on a dummy round, the shooter has to say, good press or bad press and then the coach would confirm well when mr holstrom would be my coach over a couple of times i saw my front sight move and i was about tempted to call it a bad press and then holstrom would pop up with man that gun didn't move at all until but after i was seeing a lot of movement but it was after mm-hmm. i had pressed the pressed the uh, dry shot off and so that's what i came with now i'll throw it to you mr holstrom yeah, uh, not just to, to jump on the wagon there, but but absolutely, I, I saw that as well. In my case, um, well, the other thing that I, so I've experienced that before using a particular uh, product, the, the Mantis X system, not trying to put in a plug for that, but it's a, an electronic device that analyzes the, the movement of your firearm during your dry press or live fire, but I, I use it a lot in, in dry. And uh, and I, I wonder, you know, people talk about post-ignition and, and pre-ignition, uh, flinch and movement and, and that sort of thing. And there's there's definitely some relationships there. And I know for me, the more of a wall there is in the trigger and the heavier the trigger it is, um, I'm more prone to have that. And I, I think it I think it makes sense, not an excuse. But the fact is, if I have to push 12 pounds on the trigger and then it snaps through, um, I'm more likely to bottom out that trigger still with some energy on it than if it's a 
three pound trigger when uh, when it goes through. So I have to be more aware, more cognizant of it when I'm shooting a gun with a heavier trigger. And in fact, uh, at the budget class at the last minute, I had to pull a gun out of my safe that I had basically bought brand new, put a dot on it, zeroed it and hadn't shot it. And I was reminded that actually triggers do break in a little bit on a Glock. And, and uh, it was uh, I, I, the first day um, I saw more of that. So I, I think that's, that's the same. The other thing for me is that I realized I've been doing a lot of things with movement and on moving targets. And I really embrace the idea of site video versus site picture. The fact that the sites are never absolutely still, but I realized that I had allowed myself to get lazy. And in fact, I can make the sites a lot more still than I have been making the sites. And uh, so that was a, a good reminder for me to, uh, to get back into looking at, uh, at using those dry fire systems and, and looking at what really is happening with the movement of the gun at what point in the process. Mr. Hearn. All right, so for the record, I, I had to start taking notes, but you can't see this. It actually says visual patience for my biggest takeaway. And especially on the, uh, the final exercise of the, the drill, which was a, I, I, you know, basically a, a simulated hostage target. Um, I shot an incredible, uh, a very good group, but it was what finally allowed me to make that breakthrough was number one, the fear of what would happen to me if I didn't, right? Because, you know, uh, that's always in the background with Larry because, you know, I was uh, myself and I won't name any names, somebody else that maybe on the panel consistently were getting bad trigger presses when most of the class had stopped doing that, right? <laughs> Not to name any names, but- uh, Could have been me. Um, <laughs> what it finally came down to, to me sure. working through that was a combination of what you talked about was number one is letting the gun settle down accepting the fact the gun's going to move. And when it does, don't back off on the trigger. Hold what you got. Allow the, the, the sight picture, the sight alignment to stabilize where you want it. Keep building pressure and just having the bloody patience to let the gun go off on its own. Once I started doing that, uh, it was great. And it takes to some degree the demands that he was placing on us to remind you, because I'm familiar with site patience. I've, I've, I've preached site patience. I've told people you need to have more patience with your sites and let the trigger break happen. But man, I, I got a huge heaping dose of that in this course. Cool. All right. We have been rejoined by Mr. Cagle, who has once again made America safe. Um, David, the very question... dramatically, I might add, you know, just yes. poof, here I go. <laughs> Same world. Now I'm back. Uh, David, the question is, is, what in your individual skill level, not necessarily from a teaching standpoint, but you as a shooter, what was your biggest takeaway from the class? So you pretty much stole exactly what I was going to say, talking about the over travel thing. Um, that was one thing that and uh, being stiff with my trigger finger was the two things I really focused on kind of training out of myself. And I thought it was interesting because uh, the last time I went through Larry's class, I shot a staccato P, but it had iron sights. And this time when I went through, I shot a, uh, a staccato P again, but it had an RMR on it. And so I could actually see the over travel in the dot easier because I would press the trigger and I would hear the hammer fall, you know, I'd get the click. And then it was just almost imperceptible. But right after that, I would see just a little rise of where I was banging through that over travel. So um, I realized that I needed to fix that. And as with most things, Daryl and I were having the same exact problem. So we kind of got to work with each other on fixing that. 
And uh, so I worked on that. And then the second thing that was the biggest, um, the biggest takeaway for me was same thing you talked about. I was super stiff on my trigger finger. And it must have been the same exchange uh, when Wayne said that. And then Daryl was correcting me because he could literally see how stiff my trigger finger was in the trigger guard. And when I was able to kind of relax that, it made it a lot easier for me to achieve a surprise break because I wasn't feeling, if this makes sense, I wasn't feeling every extra layer of pressure I was adding to the trigger because my finger was looser so I could achieve that surprise break rather than you know, feeling every single thing that was happening with the trigger, it's going to go off now, it's going to go off now. It was a lot easier to just add pressure, add pressure, add pressure, break. So those two things were, were big for me. Yeah, and, and it made something from my shooting past make sense to me. Uh, I used to shoot a, an old Gen 2 Glock 17. It is a pistol that I've won several accolades with in, in classes. It's the gun, I, the pistol I got my advanced rating at Rogers with, uh, for example. And that trigger has an early, excuse me, that gun has an early trigger system from GlockTriggers.com in it. It's what they now call the Vogel system, but this one predates becoming the Vogel. And it has an over-travel stop in it. And... I retired that gun because I got to where I could do things with it that I couldn't do with any of my other pistols. And I never knew why. And it's like, finally, I was like, you know what? I, I, I'm not carrying this gun as a duty or carry a gun. And I need to be able to do everything that I can do with any of my guns, not just this one. And so I lovingly put it away in the safe. I occasionally get it out. We reminisce. And, but I put it up and that's when it made sense to me was the, when the over-travel lesson came, is that's why I shot that pistol so much better. Very interesting that you mentioned that. Um, the gun that I have been shooting pretty much exclusively for the last 12 months or so has a Johnny Glock trigger system in it with, it's a stock Glock trigger with the addition of an over-travel stop. Uh, a la the Vogel uh, uh -huh. modification and I I also I did not even consider that that I've been shooting a a, a a gun with an over travel stop uh pretty much as my primary well as my my primary gun for the last nearly 12 months and you know when when revolvers were the primary gun of the day serious bullseye shooters would cut the eraser off of a pencil and glue it onto the back of their trigger so that it created a soft stop at the end of the trigger press. And then when 1911s were the, were the king of the day, you immediately replaced the factory trigger with an aftermarket trigger that had an over-travel stop in it. Yeah. Maybe they were onto something, huh? Yeah, maybe they were onto something. <laughs> and uh, those were both facts that I was reminded of in a phone call with Tom Givens yesterday. Mm -hmm. And uh, likewise, with Dave Spalding yesterday, who backed up every every bit of that. Uh, any any follow up on that from any of the panel? All right, seeing none. Uh, I will now go back and throw it back to to Mr. Holshin. He wanted to talk about skip loading. Indeed. So, John, why don't uh, you explain to the audience what skip loading is? Exactly. And then any comments you have. So my understanding, skip loading is uh, the terminology that Larry Mudgett uses. Uh, some of us are familiar with a form of it that we might call ball and dummy 
but Larry has taken that to a fine art. That is that transition from the, the dry fire piece of this and, and the trigger drills in the next step of that is a very formalized set of ball and dummy exercises. A simplified version of it is that uh, you start off with two live rounds and 10 dummy rounds in the magazine. Uh, the first live round is the first one in, which means, of course, the last one out. The other one is at random somewhere else. It is loaded by your coach so that you don't know where that dummy is. And then you demonstrate the ability to deliver perfect trigger presses or not. Uh, and in order to advance, if you, if I remember correctly, if you manage to get through two full magazines at, at that level, then you earn the right to have a third live round in, in the magazine and you continue that process. But the point of genius there, and, you know, I don't know about anybody else, but I, I felt so much better many years ago when uh, one of my mentors, Rob Latham, we were on a panel together and not because I'm that level of shooter. Rob was was basically representing the, the competitive side and I was representing a more tactical approach. But someone asked about dry fire and how much you do and 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 why you do it. And we all had our input. And then uh, and then Rob's turn came up and he said, you know, he said, I don't know about anybody else, but he said, I'm always either getting or getting rid of a flinch. Now, I don't know if he'd still save that today. This was 30 years ago uh, or nearly 30 years ago. But at that time, he said, uh, hey, I'm Rob Latham and I'm a flincher. No, not not verbatim, but in effect, he did. And that's what I have always felt is is flinch is something that that develops. And uh, my understanding from Larry is the way he articulated it is that your dry practice is like putting money in the bank. Uh, you are practicing perfect trigger presses without the stimulus uh, that leads to anticipatory startle response or flinch. And the idea is if you start working speed, you start working some of these drills that are putting a lot of live fire together, you're drawing down on that bank of perfect trigger presses. And to me, that resonated. That is a, just exactly how I feel it works for me, is that I've got to do dry, dry practice throughout whatever period of live practice I'm doing. And what I mean by that is if I'm, if I'm shooting live three times a week, I dang well better be dry firing every day um, if I'm going to not see an increase in flinch. And so Larry has formalized that in his processes of skip loading. And it's, it can be quite involved. I'm not going to try and, and describe it all. I'll inevitably make oh. errors. It would be the plug to, hey, get out there and train with Larry. Uh, but that's another piece of this. We talked about the trigger drills that some places are known as mudget drills as they should be. But another piece I didn't realize until attending the class that he has really developed is that process of dry practice with the same degree of coherent, cohesive practice leading toward um, well-defined objectives. Mr. Hearn. I think the word, you know, John, if I could summarize everything, it's just, it's methodical. There's a methodical process well laid out that, uh, you know, you work your way through there. And uh, again, the skip loading uh, certainly revealed my witnesses as, you know, I, uh, I did not get as many bullets in my gun as quickly as other people. Um, and again, I, I, and it is, you know, if, if we can step aside, there is an interesting dynamic in the, in the class in that you don't want to be that guy. Right. right. Um, so it's an interesting 
subtle pressure technique to encourage you to have the uh, the visual patience, let's say, to make sure you're not the the, the guy that doesn't uh, have as many bullets in the gun. So I found the skip loading to be immensely useful. Some of the some of the drills I had been exposed to, I, you know, we talked about how oh that's a alternating ball and dummy that Claude Warner does, and I, I first saw that from Claude. But what was interesting about that was that, that there had been a long series of slightly different variations prior to that alternating ball and dummy that got you much further than just the alternating ball and dummy would have done by itself. So again, just a, a very methodical, you know, almost, you know, trust me, we're going somewhere. Um, it's going to, it may take a little while. It may be frustrating, but it's a place worth getting to. Mr. Cagle. Yeah. So I, I think all of those are, are really good summaries of, of the whole thing. And um, I believe Larry was saying, you know, and this sticks with me because Larry has probably the most perfect trigger press of anybody I've ever seen. Um, just because of the pure amount of reps he has, you know, doing the skip loading and following this process. And he's like, do you think that I don't have problems flinching every now and then? He's like, I'm fighting it every time I go shoot. Um, so it really is that never ending process. And so it's more of just a way to manage it rather than to completely eliminate it. And I think that analogy of, you know, you're building up a balance in the bank and when you live fire, you make a withdrawal, it's spot on um, because, you know, we, we went out there and spent four days training with Larry and fired about just a little over a hundred rounds um, in four days. And so most of that obviously is dry. We're getting these perfect trigger presses. We're doing all these things. Uh, and then I drove back. And right when I got back, I actually went and got to take John Farnham's DTI instructor course um, with John's wife, Martha, who's an awesome shooter. And uh, if I could take just one second to remind you that I hate you, I just want to <laughs> make sure we get that in the podcast. So... I go out there and we're, we're t uh, I take that class and it's a true instructor class. It, again, it's not one of those you just show up and shoot all the time. And so in two days, we fired a, probably about 200 rounds, but I saw instantly that all of the work that I'd done in Larry's class instantly translated. And so I was having live trigger presses at, you know, 20 and 25 yards that I could tell a noticeable difference then literally the week before I went out to Larry's, um, which, I mean, you guys know I've done a lot of training and stuff like that, but I could pretty much instantly tell a difference after taking this class, even the second time. So I'm a true believer in kind of his whole methodology. And that's, that's a good way to put it is it's just methodical, just the whole system, the way he has it thought out, the way it builds on everything and translates seamlessly into live fire. Um, it's worth doing for sure. Yeah. You know, I run a drill in my revolver class that I call the Claude after Claude Warner, because that's who I picked it up from. I don't know. Remember what Claude calls it. I just, in my notes, I write run the Claude here and it's basically skip loading. You fill the revolver cylinder full. Uh, you have the students fire one round, you have them open up the cylinder, spin the cylinder, close it. And then now they don't know whether they're going to hit that live round you know, one of the other live rounds or a dummy round or, or excuse me, the already expended round. And so you're working basically skip loading or ball and dummy at that point. And another variation on that, I've started calling the Wayne because Wayne Dobbs came into my revolver class. He says, oh, I do it, but you have to get two shots before you move on. 
and I look around all the class. All right, now we're shooting the lane. And so you do it that way. And I've been thinking, yeah, how do you accomplish this in a semi-automatic? Because, you know, they're, they're much more predominant now than you would get in a revolver. Well, what did Larry tell us? Well, when the LAPD switched from revolvers to semi-automatics in 1985, I had to come up with a way to do skip loading in a semi-automatic pistol. And this is what I did. <laughs> this has been around since 1985 and I'm just seeing it in 2021 and I've been around the training block a bunch. As and a, just as some, somebody has to drink real quick, you know, uh, Gail House actually sent me the original articles from fighting firearms. So I've got those. So yeah. I'll say Gail House twice. Right. But uh, it is frustrating to see really good material that just kind of, you know, does not get spread as widely as it should have. And that's because to do the material as Larry taught us is labor intensive on the instructor's part and nobody wants to do it that way. Um, but it's time consuming, but that's going to lead me to a question that must be asked. And the question was originally asked by the one and only John Hearn. Do we shoot too much in shooting classes? Yes. Because I think Bill counted up and said he fired 130 rounds. And that's probably about where I was. I think I fired a little more than that uh, because I, I did progress in some of the drills with more rounds in the magazines than he did. Um, so three days on the range, because one day was all classroom, less than 150 rounds. And we're all training guys who are raving about this class. So, John Holson, do we shoot too much in shooting classes? Absolutely. There's, uh, without a doubt, there's, there's a place for it. There's a time. There's certain things we, we need to work on. Um, I, I guess I would back up and say it depends on the level of the class, obviously, and what you're trying to achieve. Uh, once we get fundamentals down, once our students have fundamentals, I want to move them once they start moving them to thinking about shooting to save their life, uh, then I need to and want to encourage them to continue and to engage as long as there's a threat. And I want to ensure that their grip uh, and other aspects of their physical skills will allow them to get multiple rapid hits. Uh, we have to practice that at some time. But practicing that before you have the fundamentals is an absolute waste, of course. And I think, you know, in, in multi-day classes, something I strive to do is keep varying that pace back and forth between um, the precision and the the other skills, whether it's speed, whether it's movement, obviously we're not going to see the same precision on target if we're moving at the same time as, as we're firing or we're engaging a, a moving target. Uh, but overall, yes, we fire too much, particularly in, in fundamental classes. And frankly, all of us, in my opinion, well, I'll speak for myself. I can absolutely always benefit from working my fundamentals and that does not need to be a high round count. And actually what I'm convinced now is I now have a process that I'm using uh, that accomplishes more with less. All right. Uh, I believe Mr. Hearn is having technical issues. So we'll skip and go to Mr. Cagle to follow up as was in very emphatic. Yes. A moment ago. Yes. So I, I had to just get that in because I'm too fired up about this, this topic right now, but you know, it's kind of, You've seen, and especially with kind of the the newest generation of trainers that are coming out, um, 
we add more and more rounds that we're shooting in classes. I, I'm pretty sure in the original Gunsight 250 class, um, when Jeff Cooper first started teaching it, uh, like at API, you would shoot like 500 rounds in a week or something like that. And I think Shane Gosa was talking about that on on your your podcast with him. And so, you know, 500 rounds in five days or so, about 100 rounds a day. Yeah, that's about right. And he's saying people are, you know, training to be these competent marksmen by the end of that. And now you have classes where it's literally it's 500 rounds a day. And there are some classes that get all the way up to a thousand rounds a day. I know of multiple classes from multiple different trainers that's three days long and 3,000 rounds. Um, and to me, that is insane. So I completely believe that we shoot too much in shooting classes. And it wouldn't be David Cagle being a guest on a podcast if I didn't mention Paul Howe at some point. So when COVID first started um, and all of the ammo stuff got insane, Paul actually reduced the round count on his TAC pistol class by about 50%. And people actually were shooting 250, 300 rounds in two days. And what we saw with that was there, was, there wasn't really a loss in the skill people were having. If you have them run half dry, half dry reps and then half live reps, you still get the same thing. So I've seen this now from multiple different trainers um, that less rounds does not mean less skill building. Um, less rounds can actually mean more skill building. So emphatically, yes, I believe we shoot too much in shooting classes. All right. I believe Mr. Hearn is back and he has not been out saving the world. Uh, <laughs> John, answer your own question. Do we shoot too much in shooting classes? Uh, I think that uh, kind of what John talked uh, touched on is important. Uh, I have been to some high round count classes that I thought were useful. So the example of that would be Rogers. You know, that's 500 rounds a day for five days in a row. That's 2,500 rounds. But what makes Rogers different from a bunch of other classes is that every single one of those rounds is scored, right? So I think that, you know, if you look at uh, some of the research on how people learn, especially for the novice, uh, a novice can entirely shoot too much in a shooting class. Um, as you get to a higher degree of skill and competency, then shooting a little bit more can be certainly be useful. But uh, I meant to mention this in our when we did the original video on shoot too much in shooting classes. Uh, level one class at Rangemaster way back in the day at the mothership. Uh, when the first ammo crunch hit that level one class, we actually had to reduce the number of rounds fired. This is, again, a very basic introductory course. And those, uh, say, 15 to 20 rounds that had previously been fired were replaced with dry practice. And we were really curious to see what effect that would have on student performance. And shockingly, student performance didn't stay the same. It didn't go down. It actually went up. So um, it really does. If you're going to shoot a lot, it needs to be at the hands of a master instructor that can really know, you know, how much you can push it and when to stop. Yeah, I can tell you that at the end of each day, I was done. I don't, I, I don't want any more. Even though the round count fired. Uh, was not exceptionally high. The mental intensity of the day and the physical intensity of the day from, from all the dry practice, uh, I was more spent than I would be from just standing out there shooting 500 rounds in a day. Um, well, and that was, you know, I found, you know, one of the things just to, to bind you here for a second is that uh, a lot of people will compromise what they teach in order to be more sexy, to draw in a larger student base. And one of the things I loved about Larry 
was Larry was absolutely convinced. And I think we tend to agree with him that he had a very solid methodology for shooting. And he didn't care whether he had 100,000 people show up for his class. But if he was going to turn you out, he was going to take you to the absolute best course possible. And again, this is uh, part of the reason that probably he's not super uber world famous is that he showed up willing to work. His assistant instructor showed up willing to work and he expected you to work. Um, and it was, you know, W-O-R-K is a four letter word. And, you know, it's funny, as you mentioned about just staying, you know, all the dry practice and stuff like that. Uh, uh, when you mentioned that, I'm like, yeah, I'm really glad I didn't have that tungsten grip module on my 320 because, you know, three days of keeping that up would not have been fun, even though, you know, how cool it may be in the USPSA world. Yeah, I, I noted a story that he told about round counts. And he noticed that when he was an instructor for a very famous shooting school, that he got called on the carpet because it became known that the students did not shoot but 600 rounds instead of 1,000 rounds, as the course description called for. And it's like, why didn't you make the round count and everything? And it turns out that that one famous shooting school, it had become a marketing contest between them and another school because the other school was saying, come to our five-day class and you'll shoot 1,500 rounds. And so then the school that he was working for was, well, we have to be in that same ballpark so they're not, they are not get used against us. And, you know, you see that in some of the reviews as people want to know what the round count was. That's all you shot, everything. I remember there being some internet drama over a course review a few years ago from a very famous instructor in which the round count was mentioned as being different than what the student perceived it was going to be. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm glad we only shot 130 rounds. Uh, did y'all catch him tell that story? Did I understand that correctly? I believe so. I remember it as well. Oh, yeah. Well, that uh, there may have been uh, the words conflict of interest popped to my mind because, you know, the, the same yeah. school that was offering the increased round counts was also selling the ammo to the majority <laughs> of the students. Yeah. So I think one of the one of the things that I really respect about Larry kind of goes along with that story. Um, I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with the Fountainhead by Ayn Rand and the whole Howard Roark character, but that's kind of Larry's take on firearms training is he makes zero um, cuts. Like he, he doesn't make sacrifices that are going to negatively affect the student. So if he thinks it's not going to benefit the student to shoot more rounds, he's not going to have them shoot more rounds no matter what. Uh, and it goes along with the story he was telling at LAPD when they started the rifle program, he was failing 75% of the students because he was not going to compromise on the standards. So I, I think that's just an interesting thing to note is, you know, his four-day class, it's not fun, which is what we're talking about. It's work, um, but you're going to get better. And he designed it for people who want to come out and work and don't want to show up and just be intertrained. So. Well, you had to work just to get to the range on that horrible road. I'll, I will say that. <laughs> 1.7 miles, a bad road. Yeah, uh, this range, uh, if they ever start getting noise complaints, uh, it's going to be a feat of nature that that, that happened. Um, we've been going about an hour and 20 minutes now, so I guess we need to start working toward the wrap up. So I'm going to just go around the, the horn here, and I would just like for any kind of, you know, general wrap up statement about the class that you would like to make. So, Mr. Holshan. Two things. One, um, 
you know, particularly if you're an instructor, uh, you know, people make a, a, an attribute out of staying in your lane. Uh, don't let staying in your lane turn into getting stale. Uh, get out there and, and see another way of doing things. It, uh, it's refreshing and, and it's fun. Uh, secondly, is folks um, of Larry's vintage are not going to be out there forever uh, available to us. So now's the time, uh, no time like the present. If you have an interest, get out there and uh, get in touch with the man, let him know that you're interested and find a way to get out there and train with him. Mr. Hearn. Uh, two thoughts that popped in my mind. Uh, one very directly related we're talking about. Uh, we had, you know, we had a, a, for lack of a better word, newbie just so we could see how the techniques work. But overall, we had a very highly advanced shooting class. Um, it's better than any other class I've been anywhere in the world because it was personally selected. Um, you know, it was an incredible group of shooters. And what we spent, uh, you know, a day in the classroom, a day completely dry, and then two days not firing many rounds was an absolute revisitation and immersion in the basics. And there's a lot of people out there that think that the basics are something that you um, you cover so that you can move on and do something like that. But I think that every single person that was there benefited hugely from a very, very deep redive into stuff that you already knew, but you got reminded of it. And I think you came away with a new appreciation for just how much sights and trigger matter, or I guess, you know, dots and trigger matter if you're one of those Buck Rogers kind of people. Uh, that, that was my, my, my big thought there. The other thing I'd point out was that one of the things that I enjoyed, and, I, and hopefully don't get in trouble here, was hearing some of the behind-the-scenes politics in large agency um, events and decision-makings. And to hear about how one division was intentionally trying to sabotage the training of an entire group of the department so that a, a particular tool would be taken away from them so it would remain in their exclusive province. Uh, we, we know that happens on occasion, but it was really, really disconcerting to just hear how blatant it was. And I just, you know, it's a good reminder to the general population that the, the person answering your 911 call may not be the most effectively trained or equipped officer for, you know, reasons that go well beyond budget, but, you know, internal politics uh, and deliberate sabotage may also be rearing their head as well. All right, Mr. Cagle. Yeah, so Larry is one of those people that is intensely motivating and pretty much definitely the whole day in the classroom and all of the kind of many impromptu instructor speeches that he gave throughout the four days. Um, just, I've probably never been quite as fired up about firearms training and instruction than after coming back from that class because he's just so obviously passionate about the material and not only the students, but he was very interested in training this new kind of, uh, to him, new wave of instructors. So it was it was really awesome for me to see that. And I was actually, I was just looking through my notes, um, going along with what we've been talking about. One of the things that he said to us was that most instructors are not trying to find ways to work harder. And that is a very true statement. And so... Basically, his point was that you want to be the instructor that's trying to find a way to work harder, because if your students don't see that you're more motivated than them, they're not going to buy into it. Um, you have to be at least as motivated as them if you want them to succeed. So I took a ton out of it. I would take the class a third time. I probably will if I have the opportunity. Um, 
and it was awesome to be in the class and it was awesome to be in the class with awesome firearms instructors such as you guys so um glad we got to talk about it and debrief it unfortunately i am out of my dinner break time so i gotta go back <laughs> 10 8 so i've got to dip out but uh thanks for having me on and sure. let me come share my thoughts all right go save the world young man i'll try my best all right um you know Years ago, I was part of a group that got to put together a presentation on the Range Master Doctrine. And as Mr. Hearn was another member of that group. And he made the point of we need to, as instructors, we need to be going to other instructors and taking their most basic class and seeing how they teach to the beginning student. And that that's where we'll pick up the most. And you know, that's what we all did this past week. And but I also noticed something that uh, that uh, Larry said on day one there in the classroom. He said, you know what, guys, you're here taking the basic class. But really, and truly, my basic class is not any different than my instructor class. And that proved to be true over the entire week. And I learned a lot about teaching this art to other students. And now some of it's going to be difficult to translate in like a one or a two day traveling trainer model. But for, you know, my in-house training program that I have with our personnel, it's going to become extremely prevalent in that. And, um, you know, John Hearn, I'm going to throw it back to you just for a second. Just remember that. You remember that conversation where you were talking about we need to, to go back and take the basic classes from students? I mean, from yeah, well, I've said that, that, you know, if you want to improve yourself as a shooter, you go and take an advanced class. If you want to improve yourself as an instructor, go take a basic class. Because, um, you know, you're going to have to come up with six different ways to explain something to someone. And you either invent those cells, you invent them all yourself, which is exhausting and may tax the limits of your abilities. Or you can simply pay somebody for their takes on it and use that material, hopefully inter, you know, crediting them with that in there. But yeah, you, this is how you get better as an instructor. And this was, like I said, it was a very good, solid, deep dive into the basics that you know, I, was, I was really happy to have done. Mr. Holshaw, I'll throw it back to you for anything on that. Yeah, um, you know, words again. Uh, basics is, is absolutely what it is. Um, I use the term foundational skills. Uh, because that helps me remember. And I, I use that talking to others that these are foundational skills. And like anything else, if the foundation isn't there, the structure built upon it is not going to be long lasting. It's not going to be sturdy. So uh, so number one, focus on the foundational skills is, is awesomely important. Number two, and, and really kind of where I started this is for me, the personal interest is really in seeing how other people teach it. And, you know, uh, we all share, I think the note-taking thing. And I'm, I'm reminded of uh, one of the tactical conferences where Lee, you were teaching a block on, on lever gun, social lever gun or defensive use of the lever gun. And I commented, you know, I've never actually seen any formal training on lever gun before. And yet a couple of, of real interesting points, but what happened was I was there observing your class and taking notes of the drills you do, because to me, again, if you take notes in class, why would you not take notes on the range? If the instructor is worth worth his salt at all, he there's a there's a 
purpose. There's reasoning behind these drills and what follows and what are the, the teaching points. So I'm taking notes and uh, somebody else observing went up to you in the break and said, hey, that guy, that bald guy standing over there, he's like writing down everything you say. And you said, uh-huh. And he goes, no, no, you don't understand. He's like writing down like every drill you do. And you said, uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, and in there you conveyed to him eventually, aren't you? Why not? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's, you know, that's a, that's the real joy of, uh, of that I, for me right now is look at how other people teach the material. And I have to say that that, that time spent with Larry was just absolutely of incredible value in seeing a master teach his craft. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed it immensely. There you go. And then uh, I just in, in final thoughts, I got to say that the group of people that were there taking this class um, made it immensely even more enjoyable than the typical class experience uh, because, you know, we all stayed pretty much at the same hotel. So we met for breakfast each morning. And so the whole breakfast conversation was all training related, you know, et cetera. Then we go, we go to class. We spent all day in class together. We wouldn't get back to civilization till like 6.30 or 7 o'clock. And then we would go meet at a restaurant. And all of the dinner conversation was what about class that day or other training-related topics. And then it was back to the hotel to sit around the fire pit till 10 o'clock at night with even more conversation. So these are really and truly you know, 16, 17-hour training days for me. And, and I just... To be able to deep dive and immerse with people who have similar passions and similar, you know, takes and but also bring different perspectives was just incredibly enjoyable uh, for me. And uh, Mr. Holshin, any any final thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. Agree 100 percent. And uh, I have to say uh, thank you to Daryl for the invitation and, and making this thing happen. Uh, weren't able to do that tonight, obviously, but. We've conveyed it. Uh, I've conveyed it, and I'll continue to convey it to him. Great opportunity and and great camaraderie, yeah, Mr. Hearn. And I think that you know the fact that we're all you know me and Mr. Note Takers and stuff like that. Just you know, it's great. Um, uh, you know, I spend most of my life as, a, as this really bizarre outlier among most of the people I ha uh, hang out with, right? You know, why? You know, as far as my passion for this material, my desire to read deeply about it, to to work for my own stuff. And it was really nice to, you know, essentially feel normal for five or six days, let's say. <laughs> With a bunch of other weirdos. Yeah, yeah. Hey, absolutely. I mean, I may take notes, but I don't take notes like Hoshin. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and you know, I guess we should should mention that there were several other names that our our audience would be very familiar with that were supposed to be in the class, but that's things that come up, that came up um, that prevented them from being there. You know, one was, was Chuck Haggard. Chuck, we missed you being there. And we know that you would have added tremendously to the experience. Uh, Cecil was supposed to be there, too. Oh, man. Always loved that. <laughs> I, I had to throw that out there flat like that just to mess and, with Cecil. Uh, he could have had all the fruity drinks he wanted the last night as well. It, we That was a trip Taylor made for Cecil. There you go. There you go. Uh, well, gentlemen, I enjoyed the class experience tremendously and i have very much enjoyed uh this uh walk back through the class tonight and thank you each for your friendship and and your counsel over the years and just any any final thoughts mr holsher 
I don't believe so. Mr. Hearn. Uh, five stars. We'd do it again. There you yeah. go. And we need to do it again. We need to pick out another class and get the group back together and, and, uh, and go hit it again uh, because it was just a tremendous experience. Uh, with that, uh, folks, we're going to sign off here in just a moment. After I ask you to do uh, the give us good ratings, if you think we have deserved them, share the links with your uh, very intelligent, uh, like-minded friends. Uh, don't share it with the dumb ones. Just share it with the, with the intelligent ones and um, you know, help the show audience grow. Um, you know, share the podcast link or the, the YouTube link, uh, whichever you prefer. And we're going to keep doing it as long as there's an audience for it. It is continuing to grow. Um, we are up to the 30-day average right now uh, for episodes is 161 from the podcast feed. And the YouTube average typically gets uh, up, up over about 250 in that same amount of time. Uh, some of them are getting up to 300, 400 uh, as they go. So if, if, you're, if you're liking the show, please uh, share it and help keep it going. And uh, like I say, we'll keep doing it as long as there's interest. And I am that Weems guy. And thank you for your time.